finding you know communities that have been shut out and giving them a reason to step in is i think the urgent need of this democracy our work is so much about just in the first place um, activating this mindset uh, that says i have both the capacity and the responsibility to exercise power we're seeing people really wake up and realize that being morally right <laughs> and making good points doesn't matter if you don't have the votes and the seats and the political capital to back it up. So I realized I had a choice. I could accept the injustice or rewrite the law. <laughs> so I rewrote it. Welcome back to Breached, a podcast on the American social contract. I'm Jyoti Jastrasaria. And I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. A side note before we jump into today's content, you might notice that we sound a little different. To ensure that no one blames our tireless and talented producer Mareva, we want to point out that I am in Chicago for the summer and Jyoti is recording in our usual spot in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We can hardly believe it, but this is the final installment of our 10-episode series, though we do have a wrap-up epilogue coming on July 4th. Thank you to everyone who has listened and engaged in these conversations with us over the past few months as we embarked on this experiment. If you're just joining us, we recommend that you start at the beginning with introducing Breached, a short promo that explains our project. From that point forward, feel free to skip around to the topics that interest you most. We started our series by exploring the big questions of who belongs in the social contract and how people have worked to shape it through dissent. We then explored five substantive areas that have traditionally been considered components of a social contract, safety, health, education, employment, and housing. Finally, we delved into how to sustain the social contract, particularly through taxation and service. Today, we're picking up where we left off. Something that was at the center of our conversation about service was the notion of citizenship, the idea that as members of a community, we have a certain responsibility to engage. That engagement, however, requires more than just service. Active citizenship also requires a sense of agency and power to actually change one's community, including its norms and rules. In fact, the idea that people should have the power to shape government and rewrite its values has been present since the founding. The Declaration of Independence states, quote, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So while this episode won't explore the creation of a new government per se, the questions we're asking today get at the same basic notion— How do we not only uphold the social contract, but also revise and revamp it as citizens who are participating in the political process? What role does democracy play in the conversation that we've been having on this podcast for the past five months? Alan Casey, co-founder of City Year and one of the guests on our most recent episode, perhaps said it best. The biggest challenge facing our country is what your whole podcast is about. What do we owe our country? What is the role of citizens in our democracy? Um, How do we break through this 
ridiculously paralyzed government that we have and political system. And the answer is not going to come, I don't think, from the political parties or the existing political leadership. It's going to come from people doing what our founders did, which is, you know, invent new ways for people to participate. And ultimately, it's going to be citizens who take our democracy into their own hands, redefine the social contract, and get our democracy to really be as robust and just and participatory as, you know, this journey to a more perfect union really is meant to be. As Alan pointed out, democracy is essentially the linchpin of the social contract. On the one hand, it's a facet of American life that feels particularly broken right now. On the other, it is the very means through which we can rewrite the social contract in the areas that we covered on this podcast, safety, health, education, etc., and in the many more areas that we did not. If we want to do that rewriting, we have no choice but to participate in the process. The good news is that by doing so, we can also revitalize democracy itself. To participate in the project of revitalizing democracy and with it our social contract, it's first important to understand the ways in which our current political system does and doesn't allow people to participate. To lay this out, we spoke with Larry Lessig, professor at Harvard Law School and 2016 presidential candidate. One of the things he emphasized is how, at least on some levels, our representative democracy has strayed from the much more egalitarian principles that the framers envisioned centuries ago. Well, of course, you have to start by recognizing the framers had a very stunted view about the relevant persons who should be considered political citizens, you know, basically white men white men with property. But with respect to those people who were, quote, citizens um, with, political, uh, with political rights, their strong conception was that those people should have equal uh, political power inside of uh, the system that they were establishing. And they imagined their representative democracy responding directly to that equal power. So Madison in Federalist 52 describes the House of Representatives as, quote, dependent on the people alone. And then in 57, to clarify what he means by the people, he says, quote, not the rich more than the poor. So the idea here is this mechanistic system of dependence that is to produce a representative democracy that would feel bound to be representative of all the people. Um, And that idea, though narrow in their context, um, uh, is really quite extraordinarily egalitarian. Larry explained that equality has been eroded over time and that this is apparent in many different facets of our political system, starting with state-based efforts. You know, you can start with the uh, kind of most obvious and grotesque intentional efforts by states to suppress the votes of certain citizens by either requiring they have voter IDs Um, or requiring um, that they go through steps to um, reassert their right to vote because they've been removed from the rolls using these really crude technologies for identifying voter fraud. That intervention, um, Charles Stewart at MIT has estimated, meant about 18 million voters in 2016 just couldn't participate equally in the political process. 
He also described the challenges with our presidential elections and the way that the electoral college allocation system affects both campaigns and actual governing. Or think about the way we elect our president. And I don't mean here the electoral college per se, but instead the way the states allocate electors in the electoral college. So all but two states allocate electors according to winner take all, which means the winner of the popular vote gets all the electoral college votes. But what that system does is it means that the only states that matter in the presidential election are the deeply purple states, states where the um, the election could go one way or the other. And in 2016, what that meant is that 99% of spending happened in just 14 states. Now, those 14 states are just not representative of America. They are older. They are whiter. Um, their industry is kind of 19th, 20th century industry. Um, they deserve to be represented like anybody else, but they don't deserve to be represented more than everybody else. Um, and so people from Texas or New York or California, um, you know, they just don't matter to presidential candidates. And you can see that not only in the way they spend their time campaigning, but you can also see that in the way they actually govern. So they bend over backwards to make sure that these swing states are happy. Um, and the rest of the country, they don't have much concern for it. The lack of representation is also present outside presidential politics. And then, you know, you think about the way that uh, um, the, elector- the uh, House of Representatives is gerrymandered, you know, the safe seat gerrymandering, which means if you happen to be a Republican in a safe seat Democratic district or a Democrat in a safe seat Republican district, you know your vote just could never matter to your representative. You know your representative has no rational reason to care at all about what you think. And what that means is that their focus is not on their district or the you know, rest of the people in their district. Their focus is on the even more extreme Republican or even more extreme Democrat who might challenge them in a primary, um, leaving what we calculate about 89 million Americans without any effective representation in Congress. Finally, he described the issue where he himself has spent most of his reform efforts and which was the focus of his 2016 presidential campaign money and politics. And then finally, the one that, you know, is really the most extreme and uh, in some ways the most obvious, um, the way we fund campaigns. You know, members of Congress and candidates for Congress spend anywhere between 30 and 70 percent of their time raising money to get back into Congress. Now, to do that, they don't call the average American. They spend uh, their 30 to 70 percent of their time calling no more than 100,000 Americans. And those 100,000 Americans, therefore, have enormous power um, as the members bend over backwards to make them happy. Um, And obviously, the power they have is vastly greater than the power that the other 139.9 million voters have in America who aren't among those funders. So these are all ways in which we've allowed the system of representative democracy to evolve, to deny this basic commitment of equality. Um, And it's no surprise that we have a government then that most people feel is just not representing them. For Larry, the long list of factors that cut against equal power in politics makes it understandable that so many people have been tuning out. I think it's not rational for many people, uh, maybe most people, not to be engaged in politics. So if you are a Republican in Massachusetts, I don't know why you would go out and vote for congressman. Uh, because there's no chance you're ever going to elect a congressman in Massachusetts. Even though a million people voted Republican in 2016, they gerrymandered the district so that there's no chance that a Republican gets elected here. 
Um, and so if you're a Republican who says, I'm not going to go vote for Congress off your election, why would I waste my time? I, I'd say I get it. I understand why. So I think one way in which this system corrupts American democracy is it gives people a reason not to be involved. And if we could fix that and you know, make it so people had, an, had a stake, an equal stake in what their democracy was doing, then I think you'd see a much wider range of people actually stepping up and getting involved. And I think that's what we need here. Finding the you know, communities that have been shut out and giving them a reason to step in is, I think, the urgent need of this democracy. The work of giving people a reason and the tools to step in is exactly what our next guest is focused on. Eric Liu is the founder and CEO of Citizen University, a nonprofit organization that promotes what he terms powerful citizenship. Our work is so much about just in the first place um, activating this mindset uh, that says I have both the capacity and the responsibility to exercise power. Um, and then it's much more about, okay, what are the skills? What are the values? What are the systems I need to understand um, in order to, to exercise power effectively, whether at the neighborhood level, uh, the city, the state, or, or, or national? Citizen University grew from Eric's own experiences working in government and participating as an active citizen in Seattle, Washington. You know, I'd worked in Washington, D.C. Um, I'd worked uh, on Capitol Hill and then later for President Clinton. Um, and uh, in between two different stints for President Clinton, was doing a lot of writing um, about race and American identity and democracy. And, uh, you know, the, the accumulation of all these experiences uh, really led me to realize how much, um, uh, well, to use the language of this podcast, how much the idea of the social contract has been eroded uh, and how, how little opportunity there is for most Americans um, to not only express but also to actually activate uh, a sense of shared and, and higher purpose together um, in, in civic and common life. And so, you know, we, we created Citizen University to address, you know, the, 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 the sense of uh, isolation and powerlessness that has become so pervasive in American life during this age of, of nearly unprecedented inequality and concentration of wealth, uh, but also to address the fact that over the last few decades, um, most Americans have become profoundly illiterate in power uh, and don't really understand how stuff gets done anymore, who decides, how um, issues uh, uh, get resolved in, in government and politics, but also how um, each of us can influence uh, the shape of, of civic life. Perhaps surprisingly, Eric has learned more about democracy from his time participating in his community in Seattle than from his years working in the federal government. To be candid, I think where I got my most useful education in democracy um, has been the last 18 years living in Seattle uh, and being a citizen of the city and of the state of Washington um, and just having to show up myself in different ways on different issues. Uh, Seattle has long had a culture um, of neighborhood activism and people showing up and um, expressing their views and their vision, sometimes in a very expansive and open-hearted way, sometimes in a fearful way that is resisting change. But in all cases, people show up, and there is a culture of voice here uh, and an expectation that uh, people who are making decisions, whether appointed or elected, um, have to be truly responsive to to the people. That 
really has formed me um, in some big ways about uh, thinking about what's possible uh, when you do have a, a, a thick culture uh, of democracy and this deep expectation that uh, uh, people should have power and that people uh, should be able to express and, and exercise that power in ways that change the game and change the outcome. The power that Eric referred to, power to change the game and the outcome of the political process, is central to his work. And he underscored how important it is for people to be comfortable with exercising power so that they can engage with and shape the social contract. In our work in general at Citizen University and, and in this new book of mine, I define power pretty, pretty simply, which is a capacity to ensure that others do as you would like them to do. Now, there are some folks who, as soon as they hear that, they get an allergic reaction. It sounds very menacing. It sounds domineering. It sounds kind of darkly evil or uh, sordid somehow. And my consistent message to anybody who has qualms with that definition is, please get over it. Uh, because, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, at every scale of, of life, we are always, as humans, wired to try to get others to do as we would want them to do. We are always looking for ways to move the attitudes, mindsets, actions, and behaviors of others um, in a direction that we would like to see them move. And so any qualms that you may have about that are dangerous because willful ignorance of power simply seeds the field to those who are quite happy to be super fluent in it and to exercise and to practice it, again, for their own narrow, narrow particular interests uh, uh, in ways that may well be harmful uh, to you and your interests. And we have to become literate in these different forms of power and how to exercise power. How do you mobilize people? How do you move and activate ideas in ways that are sticky? How do you change social norms? How do you organize and uh, uh, organize people as against money? Or how do you organize money uh, as against people? Um, you know, we're not born knowing how to do these things, but the point of democratic life is that we should get practice in them. Although Larry and Eric described a political process that has a long way to go, they also expressed a good bit of hope that this is a moment for change. Larry shared his reasons for optimism. I'm actually very optimistic. There are two reasons. One's kind of bizarre, um, and the other's more obvious. Um, the obvious one is uh, people get it. You know, polling overwhelmingly demonstrates that people understand why they have a broken democracy. That's actually an enormous reason for hope. It's not like you've got to go out and teach the people anything. The people already get it. They just don't think there's anything you can do about it. So that's number one. Number two, the surprising uh, or not so obvious reason I'm optimistic is Donald Trump. And it's not the obvious things to be <laughs> commenting about Donald Trump. I mean, you know, obviously I, I think he's a disaster as a president. But he's a guy who got elected, and a significant chunk of the people who supported him um, supported him because he was going to drain the swamp and take on the power of money in Washington. Eric, too, mentioned President Trump's election as a basis for hope, though for different reasons. Well, I don't give Donald Trump a lot of credit for uh, anything, but one thing I, I will give him credit for is that he is responsible for the greatest surge of civic engagement uh, that we've seen in this country in half a century. Now, most of that engagement is either in resistance to or reaction to him. Uh, but the fact remains that, uh, you know, across the board, um, people are stepping off the sidelines uh, in different ways. And some of that is, um, you know, in outright capital R resistance 
Um, uh, but a lot of that actually is, is beyond the left and beyond just the kind of uh, the, the resistance left. Uh, there are libertarians right now um, who have found that uh, Trumpism and Trumpian approaches to um, the role of government and the exercise of executive power are noxious to their worldview and beliefs. Uh, there are reform conservatives who, who actually believe that conservatism should mean something and that uh, uh, a limited government has to be coupled with uh, a bigger, more capacious sense of citizenship. Um, you've got the, these reform conservatives uh, as well who are uh, mobilizing now and organizing to uh, provide some kind of bulwark intellectually and, and, and politically against the creeping authoritarianism and the kind of disregard for, um, for the rule of law that, that the president shows. The crisis, in some ways, that uh, Trump represents and has provoked has kicked a lot of people into high gear. The explosion of political engagement following Donald Trump's election is something that Charlotte Alter, our next guest, has been writing about for the past two years as a journalist. Her work, including Time Magazine cover pieces about the Parkland student advocates and the wave of women running for office, shares the stories of people across America who are experimenting with the tools of powerful citizenship that Eric mentioned. So I think that we're seeing a widespread kind of awakening among a lot of people in this country, particularly on the left, particularly young people and particularly women, um, who are kind of stepping up and uh, and and putting themselves in the arena, and I, in some ways, it's this weird um, sort of side effect of of Trump running. I think that and and winning. I think that a lot of people looked at him and said, you know what? Hey, if Donald Trump can be president after uh, you know all of his business entanglements and all of his allegations of sexual assault and all the things he said about immigrants. If he can be president after all that, then, you know, I can be a state representative or I can be a state senator or I can be on my city council or I can serve on my school board. And that, you know, that he shattered, um, for better or for worse, he shattered a lot of the barriers of how people think about who gets to hold elected office. Um, And so that's one thing that actually gives me a lot of optimism right now is that I think we see a ton of people who don't fit the classic political mold of like white male politician in a suit. Um, I see I, there, there are so many people coming out of the woodwork to serve right now that I'm actually extremely optimistic. Charlotte gave us an example of the kind of candidate who was running now. Someone who, for Charlotte, represents the kind of politics we ideally want. One that isn't as calculated or planned for as that of previous generations. For example, there's this woman, Chrissy Houlihan, who just won the Democratic primary uh, in Pennsylvania's 6th district. She has a good shot of winning. She is a, uh, you know, she's a veteran. She was a teacher. She started a nonprofit to help teach kids STEM in schools. Um, Her father was a Holocaust survivor. Her daughter is LGBTQ. She... um, and she, when Trump was elected, she was like, she started organizing a bus of women to go to the Women's March. And then next thing she knew, she was getting gathering signatures to get on the ballot. And now she's the Democratic nominee for Congress. 
Chrissy's candidacy represents the notion that changing the political players can change the political process and ultimately policy outcomes. In addition to women like Chrissy, Charlotte has been following young people running for office. In fact, she's working on a book about millennials in office called The Ones We've Been Waiting For. She spoke to us about how crucial it is that our political system makes room for younger leaders, people that can reshape our institutions and meet today's challenges in new ways. Trump is the oldest first-term president. He was elected by graying voters. Voters over 65 voted for Trump by, do- by double digits. Voters under 45 voted for, vote for Hillary by double digits. He's enabled by uh, a Congress whose median age has gone up 10 years since the 1980s. It's one of the oldest Congresses in history. We're approaching a po- an inflection point. Um, and I don't necessarily think it's going to be like in 2018, Congress is going to be run by millennials. That definitely won't happen. But I do think that we're approaching a point where the people who are stuck in the 20th century are slowly going to be phased out and are going to retire and are going to hopefully, you know, spend some really great quality time with their families. Um, and the people who are really best equipped to solve the problems of the 21st century are going to be filling their shoes. And I think we're seeing the beginning of that. Alongside the women and young people who are running for office, this political moment has also seen the growth of other kinds of engagement. Activists using the political process to rewrite the social contract on issues of gun safety, civil rights, and so much more. We've been in a period of youth activism for a couple years now. I think what we're seeing that's different and what makes me really feel very excited is that we're seeing activists getting smart and we saw we're seeing this even with like the women's march for example the women's march is doing tremendous voter outreach right now they're they're trying to register thousands and thousands of voters ahead of the midterm the parkland kids are registering young people all over the country um there's just a there's a sense and i think frankly an overdue sense that um you know holding signs and marching is not enough. And the truth is, it isn't enough. And it was, has never been enough, right? And I think that it was sort of naive to think that it was enough. So I think that we're seeing people really kind of wake up and realize that being morally right and making good points doesn't matter if you don't have the votes and the seats and the political capital to back it up. The stories that Charlotte shared with us capture the power of citizenship and the way that ordinary Americans can leverage the political process to change the conversation and the social contract around issues that matter. Even though people have been doing this for years, there does seem to be something unique about this particular moment that begs participation. So many of the people I've spoken to have said a version of like, look, I know that this is a moment in history that my grandkids are going to be like, where were you and what did you do? Our final guest on this episode is Amanda Wynn, founder and CEO of RISE, a national civil rights nonprofit that is working to implement a sexual assault survivor's bill of rights. She often describes her work as helping people pen their own civil rights into existence. In the language of our podcast, she and her fellow risers are rewriting the social contract for sexual assault survivors by engaging in our democracy. 
you know, I never thought that I'd be made to suffer a greater injustice than what I went through on the day that I was raped. And growing up, I believed in those familiar American promises that our rights were sacred, everyone was equal in the lives of the law, and the legal system exists to right wrongs and restore justice. And uh, it was really only after my ordeal that I discovered firsthand the ways in which rape survivors are continually re-victimized, you know, and betrayed by our country's failure to make good on these promises. So I went and researched my options, and I found that there were these huge irregularities in civil rights that are available to survivors. So I realized I had a choice. I could accept the injustice or rewrite the law. <laughs> so I rewrote it, and I founded RISE. We organized, and then we drafted and passed unanimously the Sexual Assault Survivor Bill of Rights in 2016. So that law, which was signed by President Obama, codifies a basic set of comprehensive civil rights for at least 25 million rape survivors across the country. Um, and before RISE came along, only 20 bills, 0.016% uh, we're really proud of that statistic. 0.016% of bills in modern U.S. history had passed through Congress with unanimous support, and ours became the 21st. Um, so what we're working on now is um, helping others pen their own civil rights into existence, particularly survivors. Um, and to date, we have passed 17 bills in 17 months. We're really proud of that. That's an average of a law a month. When we asked Amanda how she and RISE have passed bills unanimously at a time when Congress and state legislatures are more polarized than ever, she had a simple answer. The short answer to your question is empathy, uh, but there's a longer answer. I created a theory of organizing, which I endearingly call hopeonomics. It really centers around a common value um, that I deeply believe in, which is that hope is contagious. You know, so I know the failings of America's justice system, uh, but I also know the change that ordinary Americans can bring. You know, I, after all, lived it. And it really comes down to an understanding that no one is invisible when we demand to be seen. When people work with folks across the aisle, I think there is this tendency to want to prove with facts, with anything, the tools in our arsenal, why we are right and why someone is wrong. And the conversation in reality isn't really about facts. It's about emotion. So what RISE has done in Hopeonomics is, yes, be prepared, essentially write and to the best of our abilities, have packages for legislators to get as much information as they need about the rights that we're passing. But ultimately, what we're trying to convince people is you know, it's not only the smart thing to do, you know, it's the right thing to do. Beyond the core guiding principles of her organizing work, 
Amanda also shared the ways in which her team is engaging in the day-to-day of political power building to rewrite the social contract for sexual assault survivors. That doesn't mean that we don't have very concrete action items, right? Like, that is a key part to the success of RISE, that we have a very clear finish line and we have a very concrete ask. Um, And our model legislation, which we still need to pass, by the way, state by state, we've passed 17 bills, but we absolutely welcome any new organizers, anybody who wants to contribute to the movement and become a riser. Um, But we have uh, worked on a consensus model language that everybody can agree on. Um, And it took a lot of um, essentially diplomacy, domestic diplomacy, um, to get people to come to the table, odd bedfellows, and a coalition build. One of the most inspiring things that Amanda is doing is empowering her fellow risers through their work together. In this way, engaging in the democratic process itself is changing the social contract for survivors. They are not only changing the law, but also building community and shaping their own sense of agency and power. I am just as proud of codifying and passing these laws as I am of the transformation that our organizers go through. It brings me incredible joy to see people who apply and survive to be organizers who come in with very little political or organizing background and at the end of it hold press conferences on their own. They're standing next to the governor with bill signing. They are the ones who have been empowered to create change. It is my deep belief that the people who have the best solutions to the world's most pressing problems are the people who live that problem every day. Amanda's story shows that politics doesn't have to be broken. Our democracy has the potential to serve as a vehicle for extraordinary change and progress in so many areas of life. And to make it so, we must also work to strengthen that democracy. As Larry Lessig puts it, today we may have no other option. Well, I think in some sense, yes, there's always a weak obligation, but at moments of crisis, there's a um, overwhelming obligation. And I think the really urgent need right now in America is that both political parties kind of embrace a country over party perspective and rise above partisan differences to recognize this deep failure inside of our democracy and fix it. Over the course of 10 episodes, this podcast has aimed to appeal to the fundamental value of democracy by highlighting the stories of people across the country who are redefining the American social contract. We're eager to hear from you about your reactions to today's conversation and those on episodes past. You can learn more about our guests and some of the sources that have informed our thinking by visiting our website, www.breachedpodcast.org. We've been extremely fortunate to bring this to life over the past few months. And we hope you'll stay tuned for our final, final conversation, an epilogue slated to come out on July 4th. We couldn't have done any of this without our amazing producer, Marae Valindo. And as always, we're grateful to Annie Swanson-Nystrom for our artwork. The music you hear on this podcast is Lullaby for Democracy and Go Tell It on the Molehill by Dr. Turtle. Please follow us on Twitter at Breached Podcast and subscribe to Breached on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
feel free to reach out to us directly via email at breachpodcast at gmail.com or via message at 617-528-0708. And if you haven't already, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a big help for a little podcast like this one. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm Jyoti Das Rosaria. And this is Breached.